This podcast is brought to you by Always, Secret, Venus, and Walmart. Welcome to the Hungry Hearts Podcast, a place for all of us to come and feed our souls. Welcome back to the Hungry Hearts Podcast. I'm your host, Amina Brown, and I'm so glad you are joining us in our podcast living room today. I hope you brought some hummus along too. <laughs> in today's episode, we want to gather our thoughts around the idea of worthiness. Ask yourself, do I ever feel worthy? Worthy of love? Worthy of good things? Worthy of rest? Worthy of respect? These are questions we all think about from time to time. As women, there are so many messages in society that try to prove to us that we are not worthy. And those messages can compound even more, right? For those of us who may live at the intersection of an identity, maybe based on our race, our class, or our sexual identity, how can we reclaim our worthiness? Today, we're going to hear from educator, activist, organizer, and writer, Brittany Packnett Cunningham, as she shares the ways she reminds herself that she is, and we all are, indeed, worthy. Hey, y'all. How you doing? It's always good to be in Boston. I got engaged here, actually, over a year ago, so I'm glad to be back. Um, and before I answer your question, I want to, I'm trying to make a habit of doing this. I want to acknowledge um, the tribal people who were here and are still here for whom this state is named. We are currently sitting on Massachusetts land. Um, and I want to honor the place that we are in because it's important to remember that I'm not an original person to America and also to honor the indigenous and African enslaved labor that built this city, this state, this country. Um, thank you. Thank you. I grew up um, in the Midwest in a place, in, in a family where my folks worked really, really hard to get advanced degrees, to give my brother and I access to a high quality education so that we could get master's degrees, get a good job, and always be comfortable. And growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, as also a skinny black girl, is a different experience. Um, there are so many things that my parents knew the world would try to convince me about myself. Okay. So they did so much to inoculate that for me. In, in some ways, it was, it was academic. So when other kids were watching The Little Mermaid, I was watching Henry Hampton's Eyes on the Prize series, which is 10 <laughs> videotapes. Videotapes of almost all black and white footage <laughs> of the civil rights movement from the 40s to the, to the late 60s. Um, and, and like, let's be very clear, this was the late 80s, early 90s, so somebody had to pick up the phone, dial PBS, ask for the address, write a check, send the check in an envelope to the address that PBS got just to get the 10 video box set back to force your four-year-old to watch it. <laughs> and, and, but this was my viewing because my parents wanted me to understand 
that the conversation that was going to be had about people that looked like me in the world was not the truth. Right. And they wanted me to know the truth as soon as I got out there, right? They knew that I'd be encountering institutions that would teach me to hate myself, so they wanted me to be so full up on love that it would just bounce off me, right? And you can't help but love yourself when you see Fannie Lou Hamer and Ida B. Wells and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and, you know, all of these folks who decided to do what my faith teaches me, which is really the second thing they gave me, um, which, which was to be more concerned about righteousness than rules, because I... Yes, yes. You know, I, I, Christian folks get a lot of flack, and frankly, there's some there's a bad representatives out there, so of course we do. Um, it's like the KKK, the homophobes, they look great for us. Um, <laughs> But, but I, I, was, I was taught by two parents who are our ministers about like a table flipping Jesus, right. right? About one who walked with and supped with and dined with and, and, and lived with and loved all of the last people that society tells you matter. Um, and so like I was raised by a black theologian professor. So that meant that like Jesus was always black. Santa Claus was always black. <laughs> And, and the purpose of the faith is to, is to live a life of consequence, right? Is to make sure that the world is more just and more equal because you carry the spirit of Christ. Um, and then I think the last thing that they really did for me was to teach me place. So I grew up in St. Louis, but my mother's family comes from Alabama. My father's family comes from Centerville, Mississippi. And every single summer we would go to my great grandfather's farm in Mississippi. And what I came to understand as I got older is that that farm where I would go and at first the chickens were chasing me and then I started chasing the chickens, <laughs> that place where I would go, my, grand, my great-grandfather had to work his entire life to actually have his name on the deed because he began there as a sharecropper, right? Wow. And the generations before him were literally not supposed to exist to allow my great-grandfather to get to that point, right? When I recognized that there were people that were carried in the bottom of slave ships from West Africa to this country, and those were my people, I am forced to reckon with the fact that my entire existence is resistance because I'm not supposed to be here. Right. Like, I am Amazing. not, I'm not Amazing. supposed to be coming from a generation that and actually sitting, survived, and, yeah, and, right, and right. sitting in this okay, seat. Okay, so, so, but I have a question because you, the you use the word amazing, yeah. amazing. But you use the word inoculation, yeah. which I, I, I love that word, but sometimes, you know, you get a, a shot and it makes you a little sick. Yeah. So my question is, did you ever feel unworthy in all of that? I mean, you're, you're a young woman, growing, young girl starting, sure. and these are incredibly, incredibly big boots and a, and a, yeah. heavy, a heavy head to, to carry. How was your... How did you, what was your becoming of worthiness inside of that? I mean, I, I certainly felt unworthy all the time. I, I still feel unworthy sometimes. Um, you know, I, I'll never forget applying for colleges, and I did not get into Harvard. But two semesters ago, I was a fellow at the Institute of Politics, so I didn't go to sit in class at Harvard. I went to teach class at Harvard. So sometimes you just got to let a little time pass, and you actually see that folks will figure it out. Um, and, but But... I'll never forget being in, in high school. I went to predominantly white high school. Um, very wealthy. And I was doing all the things that I was taught to do. Like, I was, like, raised in strollers going to protest, right? right. So none of this stuff is not new to this. I'm true to right. this. So Trust social me on justice that. was in your blood. It your was blood totally already. in my blood. And so as a part of that, in high school, or actually in junior high, I started um, a diversity organization with about a dozen other people. 
Um, and it was a secondary school, so we went seventh through twelfth grade. This was my eighth grade year. So we would go in front of our class, in front of our school rather, in a room that looked like this, and give speeches, build awareness. We got the school to host symposiums. I mean, it was a really big deal, especially considering our age. Um, but there were folks in that space who felt like we weren't actually identifying the problems that exist, but that we ourselves were the problem. Because we were over here ruffling feathers and um, making people deeply uncomfortable in the privilege that they had. And so there was one person in particular who was a year older than me, a white man, who um, decided that I was going to be the object of his ire. And one day after I made a speech in assembly, he started to harass me. So he would follow me in between classes and he would lean really close to me and be like, is my whiteness oppressing you today? Is my maleness bothering you? And I would just ignore him and try to keep it moving. But one day I finally turned around and I said, you know, you're really not allowed to talk to people like this. And in that moment, he decided to spit at me. Ch exactly. Um, and I was so shocked that I, like, I was dumbfounded. I turned around, I was standing right in front of the girls' locker room because it was about to be time for sports practice. And I went into the locker room and I cried for about 10 seconds and then I like closed up because I knew that nobody would care. Like he was the white male son of a trustee and I was the black female child of a widow at this point um, who was on scholarship. And sure enough, when I finally told one mentor who finally said, you need to go tell the head of school, I told them and nothing happened. I got like a clenched teeth apology, but who's gonna tell the trustees kid that they were wrong, that they're suspended, that they're expelled? Certainly not the head of school at the time. So in that moment, I certainly felt unworthy because the institution that I belonged to didn't feel that I was worthy. But years later, during the Ferguson uprising, my school asked me to come back to that same assembly hall and stand behind that same podium and talk about the work that we were doing in the streets. And the only thing that I could think to talk about was to finally, years later, oh. tell that story and take oh. my power back. Oh, that's incredible. And you know, I think that some part of me subconsciously when it first happened realized that if some speeches and assembly and some awareness building and some posters and a couple of meetings could make you that mad, you then clearly we're on the right track. You were onto something, right? Clearly we're onto something. So I think subconsciously it actually fueled me, but you have to recognize that there is always an opportunity, whether it's in front of an audience or in front of your mirror, to reclaim the power that was always rightfully yours. And that was that moment for me. So that is the most poetically just story I have ever heard. I'm uh, thinking about poetry. You and I were talking about James Baldwin backstage. Yeah. And you were sharing a beautiful quote about the responsibility and the accountability. Can you share that with everybody yeah. here? So I was, I was talking to a mentor of mine the other day who has been doing a study of Baldwin. And an old quote of his says that responsibility is never lost. It is only abdicated. And those who refuse the abdication begin again. Oh. So a lot of times we think we outgrow the things that we are purpose for, the things that we're responsible to do, the privilege that we're supposed to spend. We think, well, I spent a little bit of it, now I'm good. I'm good. Like, yeah. don't ask me for anything else, right? That means you're actually abdicating the responsibility that renews every single day you wake up. And I think our greatest responsibility, frankly, is to design a world in which everyone shares power. Every single oppressive system, structure, every single injustice that we encounter right now has everything to do with the fact that people who have power want to keep it. 
period. It all comes back down to the idea that they want to hoard their power. But that's because we've been taught that power is a finite resource. Right, exactly. That it exists in limited supply, right? We've been taught a mindset of scarcity. The truth of the matter is power is not like oil. Power is like air. There is enough air for everybody like in this love. room to breathe. Or like love. It's infinite. It's yeah. infinite. If, if 500 people came off the street needing a warm place to be, there'd still be enough air in this room for everybody to breathe. Yeah. And if we stop being so afraid that we won't have any power, just somebody else just because somebody else gets some, then we can actually design a world in which people share power. That same scarcity mindset is what led me to believe that I had to have a job at an employer that I got to check at every two weeks, when right. the fact of the matter is abundance is all around us if we'd only stop and honor it. Yeah. And good night, folks. <laughs> Let me tell y'all something. Every time Britney speaks, I just want to stomp my foot and yell, yes, speak, sis, yes. But if, but if you listen to this in your car, don't, don't, don't stomp your foot because, you know, safety first. <laughs> I love that Britney started with a land acknowledgement. We need more reminders of America's first peoples and acknowledgement that indigenous people are still here. And we also need continual acknowledgement of the African enslaved people who built America. Yes, Brittany, yes. So much of Brittany's self-worth came from her rootedness and her family and her people and not only where she was from, but the people she came from. And I love that idea because our self-worth is not isolated. It's connected in community, in those who paved the way before us and in the ways we learn to see others in ourselves. I love that Brittany said her existence is resistance. That sometimes our journey of self-worth will involve fighting injustice and speaking truth to power. And Brittany is such a great example for us in that. Join us next week where we will hear from Ruthie Lindsay, who shares how she learned to stop wearing her pain story as an identity and start embracing her life. And if you dig what you're hearing, please make sure to subscribe, rate, review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can check us out on all the socials at Together Live Events, and you can say hey to me at Amina B-E-E. -E. On this episode of Hungry Hearts, you heard from Brittany Packnett Cunningham, Jennifer Rudolph Walsh, and me, Amina Brown. Thank you to our podcast sponsors, Always, Secret, Venus, and Walmart. <laughs>